2: All right. Thank you very much, Carl Quintanilla. Here we are here at the Halftime Report. I am Dominic Chewin for Scott Wapner today. Stocks pushing higher yet again, aiming to break a three-week losing streak, but a big warning from a major investor about why stocks could fall below their June lows. We will debate that call with our investment committee. They are today. Brenda Vingello, Shannon Sacocha. John Najarian and Jim Labenthal here in studio with us in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. Let's check on the rally, though, at this hour right now. As you can see, we're up 332 points north of 1% gains for the Dow. One and a quarter percent gains for the S&P 500, now solidly above 4,000, 4,059 the last trade there, and 1.8 percent advances for the Nasdaq Composite, 12,077 the last trade there. And by the way, the Russell 2,000 small caps also showing a bit of outperformance as well. We will get back to the Investment Committee in just a moment, but first, our own Steve Liesman joins us now with breaking news and breaking headlines out of the Fed. Steve?
3: Yeah, two speeches, Dominic, by two pretty hawkish Fed members. Fed Governor Chris Waller saying he supports another significant increase in the funds rate at the upcoming September meeting. You can read significant any way you like. Some are going to read that as 75 basis points. He says there's no evidence inflation is moving meaningfully and persistently. That's a uh, a benchmark that he seems to be laying out. Meaningfully, persistently to the Fed's 2% target. A tightening path will continue, he says, until there's clear evidence inflation is moving to the target. If inflation does not moderate, he's not saying which way it's going. He's saying there's two possibilities here. If it doesn't moderate, the policy rate could exceed 4 percent. If it suddenly decelerates, the policy rate could peak somewhere less than 4 percent. So that's a bench, another benchmark that he's laying out there. Rates are likely to rise until at least early next year, in his opinion, and policy has to be meaningfully above neutral to restrain demand he does say reducing wage growth will require a significant softening in the labor market one other thing we're going to talk about this at one o'clock he sees additional inflation coming next year from rising rents right now this year. On to Esther George from the Kansas City Fed. She says there's a case for continued balance sheet reduction and rate hikes. Uh, she says it remains clear cut. Economic constraints are pushing inflation are likely to be with us for some time. This is important because what this does is it lays out the Fed's case of why they believe further rate hikes are necessary because they think the factors affecting it are going to be there because, she says, there's been persistent damage to the supply side of the economy from the pandemic. And it's a tight economy, not necessarily supply shocks that are driving inflation. I want to lay out these three things she says that are out there and lasting. One, damage to the global supply chain. Two, destruction of service sector capacity. And three, a decline in the labor force participation that she does not see these three things going away anytime soon and magically bringing the inflation rate down. Finally, she says the Fed needs to moderate growth to narrow economic imbalances and keep inflation from becoming embedded. I'll stop right there, uh, Dominic. It's a lot to think about, but we have had a chorus. Um, Five-part harmony, I think, this week when it comes to uh, hawkish talk from the Federal Reserve, and they're really singing maybe perhaps different frequencies, but in the same tune.
2: In the same tune, for sure. But this notion right now about the Fed always data dependent, we've heard this for for the record a, a lot. How important then, given those comments and the framing that the Fed has put into place now, will the inflation data be next week? Is it going to change the calculus? That How much does the inflation data need to change from one data point or two in a month's time to change the path that the Fed is on right now?
3: Dominic, I have uh, lived for 30 years covering data with one rule, which is never ask the data to do something it can't do. Next month, the, the, the inflation report we're getting next month, can be nothing more than one month's data and what the fed is saying consistently is that it needs several months of data next month next week's data on inflation cannot be more than that it will be two months in a row but what what I think is really significant here are two things. Uh, both officials seem to be suggesting there's a persistence to this inflation that they don't think is going away anytime soon. And both will say, as Powell has said, as Brainerd has said, they need several months of declining
2: data to really uh, uh, sway their path. So so Steve, I mean, if you take a look at the way there's the, 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 the economic data, the, the the formal releases, the things that we're used to on the calendar, And then there's everything the markets are showing us right now. And those people who watch the markets say that we have seen signs of peaking inflation, even though nobody wants to say it out loud over the record, but that we've seen signs of peaking inflation for several weeks, if not a few months at this point, given market indicators. How much importance does the Fed place on the raw, hard economic data, so to speak, as opposed to what they're seeing play out right now in financial markets and things like commodity prices and elsewhere?
3: You know, Dominic, over the years, when I've seen two people arguing, a lot of times they're arguing about the wrong thing. Market can be right that inflation has peaked. But that's not really what the Fed is looking at. The Fed wants to see inflation coming back down to its 2 percent target and doing so in a way that Waller laid out meaningfully and persistently. He might actually have to check the record. I've picked up uh, Powell's language on that. But that is an interesting test. If you peak at 9 percent and end up at 6 percent, that's not enough for the Fed. If you peak at 9% and go to 4%, that's not enough for the Fed. You need to get back down towards that 2% target and the thing that's important is Esther George has now given two very thoughtful and important speeches This one, I think, is also very important if you want to look at the persistent aspects of inflation and the reason why other Fed officials and herself as well are confident in the need to raise rates. It's the persistence, those three persistent things she talked
2: about. Let's bring the Investment Committee into this. Jim Labenthal, you are nodding and shaking your head multiple times during this conversation and during what Steve just laid out in terms of comments from Waller and George. What exactly about this inflation picture has you optimistic – and or pessimistic.
4: Well, first off, let me start by saying Steve is a truth teller. Um, not that any of us aren't truth tellers, but he's a truth teller and he's got insight. He's got a channel into what's going on in the Fed Thank you, Jim. that makes him worth listening to. And I listened to you yesterday. I wasn't on the show. It's actually easier to listen to you when you're not on the show. It's not in the <laughs> heat of the moment, right? Um I'm afraid one of the being things embarrassed. That you said and I just want to focus on this because I think it dovetails with what you're saying today is it's not necessarily the path, but it's the destination. Um, And I would submit to you that uh, everybody knows I'm bullish on the markets that the destination in the bull case is the Fed funds rate at three and a half to four percent. I'm going to add to what you said about the destination. It's when you get there, meaning if it is if it is essentially done by the December meeting, by the end of the December meeting, market's going to be okay. Market's going to go into 2023 and say, well, the bulk of it's behind us. We can start to look forward. The question is. Whether three and a half to four percent is the destination, and whether December is the right time frame for that, inflation matters, mm-hmm. and you're absolutely right. It's not. I mean, Jay Powell two weeks ago said all we've got so far is one month's worth of good data. Don't don't hang your hat on that. We are probably going to get another month uh, next week when we get the CPI PPI. Now I don't say that by licking my finger and putting it in the wind, Dom. I say that looking at where gasoline futures are, where could be lumber, negative next cotton, week. From your lips to God's ears. it could be a negative headline number next week. There's a long laundry list of why inflation is coming down. Guess what? Having it come down in August is also not enough. I think you would definitely agree with that. But if the the trend continues, if it continues into September, into October, that's the path of inflation by which you get to the end of the year and we're in a much more benign place. Maybe it doesn't happen, but right
2: now it looks like it will. So, Brenda, I'd like to bring you into this conversation now as well. One of the things that we've seen in the markets over the last week or so, ever since Jackson Hole, and the the, the market sell-off that ensued in the the couple of two to three days in the wake of Jackson Hole, over the course of this week now, this is interesting, Brenda, because we are now on pace for the major averages to have their first positive week out of the last four. Growth and value ETFs are now pacing for their first positive week in four. The Nasdaq is on pace for its longest winning streak now since July. U.S. benchmark oil prices are pacing for their second negative week in a row. And Nat gas prices are are on pace for their worst week since late June and their third negative week. Is it fair to say or not fair to say that the markets are expecting or are pricing in whatever Fed actions may be on the table already at this point?
5: I think that's probably fair, and you know, coming out of Jackson Hole, I was personally surprised at just how uh, shocked the market was by uh, Powell's hawkish comments. Because I think if we look at the backdrop, you know, the economy is still very healthy by many measures. At that point in time, we had had the market recovering nicely off of its June lows, so there was really no reason. And inflation's still a problem, so there's really no reason. Uh, for Jay Powell or any other Fed official to come out with dovish comments. Um, in fact, they need to control long term inflation expectations, and the best way to do that is with their commentary at this point in time. Um, so they need to convince the american public and business community they're going to solve the inflation problem. But i think if we you know fast forward to today, i think the market just became a little bit more too oversold. When we look at fundamentals, you know, corporate fundamentals are still quite healthy. I think we've had more and more of this floating of the idea of a 75 basis point cut coming out and we're seeing signs that inflation's coming down. We'll get true numbers uh, next week, but i think that all in my mind sets a stage for providing the market a little more clarity on just what needs to come next. And this um, you know a lot of that depends on how much of an improvement we see in inflation next week. And the pace of improvement and then what does that mean for the Fed going forward. And I think if we are closer uh, to the end of this rate hiking cycle meaning it's over at the end of this year and then we pause. I think to Jim's earlier point, that is a positive for the market. It certainly would provide us with more clarity um, on what comes next. Um, and so I think that's, in my view, you know, could, could set things up uh, to be more positive as the year goes on, certainly as we get more data points about inflation.
2: So what's interesting about this, this action now, folks, here is this idea that if you look at a, you know, a year-to-date or a one-year chart of the S&P 500, and you look at the lows that we saw back in June, And then you look at the highs on a relative basis that we saw just in this early (laughs) mid part of August. This 4000 ish range that we're at right now is almost smack dab in the middle of the August highs that we reached and the June lows. It kind of implies that we're at this crossroads in the market. And we had one big investor come on the closing bell just yesterday. That's Scott Miner, chief investment officer over at Guggenheim who made some relatively bearish comments, I would say, with regard to where the markets could be headed, but then again, where the markets could appear attractive. Take a listen to what he told the closing bell just yesterday.
0: I'm thinking somewhere between 3,000 and let's broadly say 3,000 and 3,400. We'll we'll figure out the bottom when we get there. But uh, you know, I would say uh, at that point I'm a buyer uh, because if you believe everything I just said, if you believe that the Fed will pause, uh, you know it's going to be supportive uh, for risk assets and uh, and the seasonals turn around. Um, you know, seasonals turn positive in November through March, actually through June. So uh, the old adage of buy in May, go, you know, or sell in May, go away, come again at Labor Day.
2: Uh, so, so, Shannon, back of the envelope math here. Let's call the S&P at 4,000. If it goes down to the bottom end of Scott Minard's range, which is 3,000, that's a 1,000 points off 4,000. That's a 25% rough decline from where we are right now. Is there anything in your mind that suggests, Shannon, that a twenty-five, twenty 20 to 25 percent drop in the market is still plausible from here?
6: And the way that that was implied in those comments, Dom, is that's going to happen before November. Um, I have a hard time. Uh, seeing that scenario play out, I mean, I would agree (laughs) at 3,000, I would be a buyer of stocks too. I mean, you just think about the valuation reset that that would would require. Um, I I don't see a catalyst for that. I I do see a catalyst for, and I think you made a great point in terms of being at the mid-range of these um, June lows and and August highs, is I do see us bumping along around this level, at least through uh, sort of mid-October. That's a very short time period uh, for anybody that, that has heard me speak before or sees me on the show. They know that I'm a, more of a long-term investor and, and certainly focused on fundamentals. Um, but I think this, these next several weeks are going to be a bit choppy. We're going to see this volatility. I think an important piece that is, is maybe being understated or perhaps needs to be pointed out in my mind is not, it's not just about the Fed. Um, it's not just about what the Fed could potentially be doing to pull us into a recessionary scenario which could potentially slow the growth of revenues for companies I think the other thing that's being offset is what are earnings going to look like next year if we see this persistent inflation um, which you know to, to Steve's point I think that's what the Fed is is pointing towards that they believe that inflation is now persistent certainly not transitory uh, are we looking at not just some concerns that the Fed could slow the economy significantly significantly, and and we have to adjust our expectations on the top line. But that would imply that inflation is still creating uh, some pressure from a cost perspective. Now, I think we're seeing positive. I think we're seeing positive trends in wage growth. But they're starting to see that tick down we're seeing an improvement in the participation rate, um, which certainly will help in, in terms of all of those jobs that are supposedly open and waiting to be filled. I think that a lot of those are aspirational, um, but I think when we think about, you know, how does we how do we get down to that level that Maynard spoke about last night? I would think you'd have to see a significant re rating in your earnings expectations for 2023. And to everybody else's point about the economy, unless we are going to expect to see a huge overhang on margin next year that we're not pricing in today, I don't think that those values are supported right now.
2: All right, so they're not. I, I want to also bring in we've got some interesting fundamental stuff that we've been talking about. Some of the chart watchers out there, including FundStrats Mark Newton, are talking about this notion of a short-term bounce being underway possibly into next week. This idea now that he says a shorter-term bounce looks to be underway in US equities that likely carries prices higher into September 14th should reach at least 4125 to 41.50. Following a rally into mid-month, few cycles come together, which could allow for a back half of September weakness trade. Steering defensive for the balance of September looks right, but with a near-term bullish bias into next week. It kind of feels, Jim, like we're already in that right now. We've seen a few days' worth of that bullish bias, albeit off of a sell-off kind of relative low. So do you believe that we could be constructive? And what, by the way, seasonally has been a very weak month for stocks? Seasonally
4: has been a terrible month. But, if, but we may have brought that forward into August. I mean, you and I are not the only ones who are aware of the seasonality of September. And I think people were positioning that a little bit in August, given the catalysts from our friend uh, Jay Powell. Um, but I think to the you, you know, you, you brought up Mark Newton, who's a technical analyst I read him every day. He may or may not be right. I don't know what to do with a five day prognostication from a fundamental <laughs> point of view, which is where you started. I would say this. Shannon made a key point here. The battle lines are now being drawn on earnings. That's where the battle line's being drawn. The analyst community is at $241 uh, for next year's S&P 500 earnings. I see plenty of people out there who are sub $200. Smart people, by the way, not dummies. Um, So we need to get some clarity on that. You know, when you're going to start to get clarity on that is the second half of September when you get pre-announcement season and we're in conference season right now. So you're like right on the cusp of getting some clarity in the near term of where earnings are going. I will say this, speaking to the economic statistics and more importantly, what I hear from companies is things are pretty good. Things are pretty good. I'm, I'm having a hard time, based on what companies are saying, uh, getting to that $200 level.
2: All right. John Nigerian, I wonder, there's got to be a way in which you start to see investors positioning themselves for that. I mean, again, the expectation, as Jim points out, we all know the seasonality trade here. Is there any way that that could not play out because everybody just thinks it's going to happen and has already positioned themselves for it? Do you feel as though the markets right now could be constructive and are investors placing bets that way?
7: They clearly are, Dom, and I'm looking for us to get back to uh, close to that 4,200 level um, on this, I'll call it a technical bounce. Some people think we break through it and then we just keep right on going. I think people will be a little uh, more uh, circumspect. I think they'll take a look at what's going to be going on in Europe and Uh, I'm sure you've seen it, Dom. There have been a lot of protests across Europe because the sanctions are really biting in Europe. And as we've talked about, the uh, uh, price of Nat gas 10 times what it is here in the United States. So people complain here. People are really feeling it over there. Um, That tells me that we could get that sub $2 that uh, Jim Labenthal was just talking about for the earnings picture for the S and P, we could get that because if Europe really has to hunker down, if those factories are not open uh, except for three days a week instead of five, um, that's a significant headwind. And the contra to that would be well, if China came roaring back, we we know that consumers in China will likely spend because that's what we saw here when we reopened. But the fact that they've been locked down this long, Dom. Uh, probably without the same wages and government support that they had here, tells me that maybe they don't come roaring out of the chute like we did here. And if they don't, and Europe is flat and falling off a cliff as far as demand, that's a reason for these earnings to be revised lower.
2: Mm. So, so so interesting, Steve. Uh, to, that, to that point, I mean, you, you watch the Fed, you watch the ECB as well. The, I mean, the Fed kind of laid the precedent out there for the great yeah. hike path. The ECB kind of followed, right? They opened the door, right. the Fed did. The ECB kind of followed through. Now this becomes kind of circular, right? Nobody really wants to not do that until we see inflation under control. I wonder, though, at normal times, we would be talking about the strength of the dollar and how, how, how many countries would take advantage of that, yeah. right? Because From a trade perspective, there's no yeah. talk about trade deficits right now because, to be frank, China isn't putting that much economic output out there right now to sell, and neither is Europe, given the energy constraints. So when it comes to the ECB versus the Fed, if who's got it tougher?
3: The ECB in a, in a big way. I mean, whatever, you know, Jay Powell has it easy compared to Christine Lagarde right now. Um, as John mentioned, she has the Ukraine mess and the horror of that war there really at their doorstep dramatically affecting what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, let me make two points that were, that were made. Uh, uh, first of all, the market's gone through, you know, the seven stages of grief. It's gone through like these seven stages of the Fed. The first one is they're not going to do it. And now there's this notion out there, well, if they do it, it's okay. Shannon really squared the circle here in the following way. It is okay if they go to 4%. But it depends on what happens with the economy. And I'm I'm answering this question because it really depends what happens in Europe and in China to a large extent. China is exporting deflation right now. Europe may be exporting inflation right now. So here we are in the middle, and the U.S. is kind of taking both those things. The other thing I want to mention is, um, remember the old computer term WYSIWYG? Did you ever hear that? No. What you see is what you get. It was a huge advancement in computing. (laughs) So just so you know... These two Fed folks who spoke, I think that's it before the inflation report next week because the blackout period begins. I think one of the things that's ha- been happening here, you've had this sort of hawkish tilt in the commentary. I think they want to tell you, don't get too excited by whatever that inflation report is next week, because they can't talk next week when this thing comes out. So I think you want to take that into context. If you can remember that we were all here right now on this Friday, this fabulous, beautiful Friday afternoon all together, um, that that the Fed was very hawkish in anticipation of what many people believe is going to be a very good-looking inflation report. Because they can't talk next weekend. They can't talk. Quick Whizzy point rig. just make one the quick point, point as a market participant as much
4: as i would like 50 basis points in yeah. 2 weeks i think the equity market has actually oh, 75. i think the equity market <laughs> is now like you know what we <laughs> got it, do it. there's it. the signal <laughs> the face. They, they can this absorb in the face it face enough times do do 75 do and we'll go and, from and there. and i, I need to make another very anyone. quick
3: point Tom, which is that jim makes a great point that for, from an investor that i talked to just tell me what the rate is i got to worry about, and I can figure out my investment thesis off of that, and rather than the volatility it. of it's going to be this, it's going right. to be that. Get to a stable point,
2: and then I think you'll get some benefits from that to the economy and to investment. Steve Leisman, thank Have you a very great much. Weekend yeah, back. you too. you too, Steve, for sure. All right, guys, coming up you next too. on the show, Farmer Jim is adding to his portfolio in this market, plus financials among the top performers so far this week. Where the committee stands on the interest rate play, Stay with us for those trades coming up. Halftime is back in two minutes.
0: Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain.
2: Welcome back to the Halftime Report. The Investment Committee is making some moves. And Farmer Jim, this is a name we've associated with you. It's Boeing. (laughs) What are you doing with it? Uh, Geez, I'm not sure I like that this is what I'm
4: associated with. I hope I'm associated with other things as well, but Boeing will play out. It's just, boy, it's taking a long time. Um, Dom, I sold some NVIDIA. uh, I sold the position in NVIDIA several weeks ago. I've had some cash on the sidelines. Boeing has had a lot of good news coming out recently. Uh, The second quarter earnings report was much better than expected, and 787s are being delivered again, which is very, very important for free cash flow. Stock shot up to 172 after that news came out. It's now back down around. 156, 157. So I'm adding to a position that I believe in and which has gone down. I mean, if you believe in a position and it goes down, that's a great opportunity to get it on sale. There are some catalysts to look forward to coming up. Now, the big one, the big one is China recertification, but that may not be the first one to come. What I'm really hoping for is congressional approval to extend the deadline for certification of the 737 MAX-10, which is the biggest version of that plane and the one that the airlines want the most. Uh, Congress really should approve uh, that extension of the deadline. There's a lot of nuance to it, but they really should. I mean, this is a good airplane. This is a major and vital port. Portion this company that is of the U.S. economy, and it would be just foolhardy uh, to to put a wall up in terms of getting that plane
2: approved. All right, so so the Boeing trade, there—interesting one for sure—and of course a a driver of the Dow. If you could start to see that bid coming back for Boeing shares, we also want to hit what's happening now with the financials—the second best-performing sector so far this week, up four percent. Bank of America is out with a bullish note on shares of Citigroup, reiterating its buy rating, saying. Don't ignore the potential catalysts. Jim, we'll come back to you. You own City. Let's talk about whether or not this is the buy type of situation that you want for Citigroup.
4: Well, here's something. I mean, Citigroup, we know it's cheap. It's very cheap. Whether you look at it, you know, well below tangible book value, I believe it's about 70 percent tangible book value or a dividend yield. Um, but I, I think the big question here is not so much the catalyst, Dom, but what the market is saying about uh, CEO Jane Frazier. Um, She's been in in the hot seat now for a couple of years. First real year was 2021, and the market, frankly, didn't didn't give her any honeymoon whatsoever. It just took the stock down. It's starting to realize that she does have a plan here. She is shedding non-core international assets. She's modernizing uh, systems there. Uh, Good shot in the arm last night when a $500 million erroneous payment is now uh, being court-ordered to be returned uh, to Citibank. And and I think you're seeing sentiment change on the the name as well, particularly regarding Jane Fraser. So let's hope and expect that it continues.
2: Shannon, uh, the banks are something that you've been keying on as well in recent days and weeks. Is there a trade that you like there? Is, is it City? Is it another money center bank like a JP Morgan or a Bank of America? or Or is it the regional side of things, given the interest rate outlook? Take us through your thought process here
6: diversified, Dom, for a long time in financials. Uh, really wanted to make sure that we were participating in a financials trade, but weren't, you know, keying only on interest rates. And so we have uh, JP Morgan has been a long time holding in our um, in our portfolio. And again, that's, a, that's several diversified revenue streams. And so for us, you know, if the interest rate environment changes or if there's uncertainty as it relates to interest rates, we believe that they have several businesses that can continue to thrive. The other place we've been active is in exchanges. Uh, Uh, One of the things that we've seen is we've continued to see transaction flow, um, you know, in in times of volatility. We've certainly seen um, a lot of volatility, a lot of volume this year. Um, And so owning those exchanges allows us to benefit from that. And then thinking about where are financial services going, um, you know, in in terms of the the growth of the retail investor, uh, the growth of retirement assets as a portion of of household wealth. Um, And so owning a company like Schwab, for instance. So we've taken more of a diversified approach to financials, which, you know, when we see significant significant um, money center bank movement that you know that is not where we have our uh the majority of our positioning um but i think that we're appropriately positioned for some of the uncertainty around the economy that we've talked about earlier in the show
2: john Nigerian uh, you've mentioned before in the past that the, that you like jp morgan you, you have a position there or i think you still do call options on jp morgan shares I do. is that is that still the preferred place for you to be jp morgan
7: Yeah, it's the only place I am right now, Dom. Um, As far as I know, it's one of the only banks that is actually uh, expanding at this moment. Um, They're looking to take on retail in Germany. I think that headline is, you know, just hours if not days old. And I I think that's one of the reasons is that they are both uh, uh, able to expand even in an environment where some of their peers aren't. And I think this is obviously uh, I'm a big fan of Jamie Dimon. So uh, I think his team around him, the people that he's um, made as lieutenants and so forth, are some of the best in the industry as well. So that's the reason I'm in that. But no other banks at this time, Dom.
2: All right, Doc, good to hear that on JP Morgan. Now, that's the financial side of things. Coming up, software stocks, tech side of things. Also seeing nice gains this week. We are going to get you caught Mm -hmm. up and set up for Oracle and Adobe ahead of their earnings reports coming out next week. And a programming note, tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, tune in for a CNBC special report. It's Crypto Night in America, hosted by our own Brian Sullivan. Watch right now, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Crypto Night in America. Halftime report returns after this break.
8: Welcome back to the Halftime Report on this Friday. I'm Contessa Brewer, our CNBC News update right now. Michigan voters will get their say on whether to add abortion rights to the state's constitution. The state election board will put the proposed amendment on the ballot in November, following an order from the state Supreme Court that reversed a previous election board decision. If approved, the amendment will affirm the right to abortion and other reproductive services, including birth control. The suspect in the Memphis shooting spree that killed four people and wounded three others appeared in court today. The judge appointed a public defender for Ezekiel Kelly. He faces a charge of first degree murder, and more charges are expected. British Prime Minister Liz Truss is at Buckingham Palace for her first audience with King Charles. Her predecessors held weekly meetings with Queen Elizabeth to discuss current events. This meeting comes just before the broadcast of King Charles first speech as Monarch. We'll be watching for that. Dom?
2: Contessa Brewer, thank you very much for the news update there. Two big software stocks are set to report earnings next week. We've got Oracle and Adobe. Shannon Sakosha, you own both of these names. Take us through what you're thinking ahead of those big reports.
6: Yeah, it's great, Dom. I love the late earnings reports. Just when you think you're done and they roll in at these uh, these late dates. Um, we'll start with Adobe. Uh, this has been a, a long-term high conviction name for us. They're going to have some tough comps going into this uh, this earnings season, um, probably some currency adjustments. And so we could see them bring um, their revenue guidance down a bit um, and certainly see some, some pressure on earnings as well. Um, our view is that this is still the long-term leader in digital transformation, going to continue to be um, a stock that we you want to own and at 24 times is actually about 20% lower than this its historical valuation. So some of this, if not all of this, has been priced into the stock. On the flip side, Oracle's a newer name for us. We added it earlier this year to the portfolio, um, looking to continue to grow their cloud presence. However, um, they have a, a focus on small and medium-sized businesses, so there could be some potential pressure from an enterprise spend. We're not seeing that on the large enterprise side, but some of these small and mid-sized businesses may feel a little bit of pressure in coming into the next couple of quarters. Um, Cerner becomes part of their sales as well, so you'll see that included. But that could also hurt margin a little bit on some of the those integration costs.
2: All right. So, Brenda, that's kind of the software look that we're seeing coming up next week. I, I wonder if we could broaden out this conversation to just tech in general. How important is the software trade to the overall tech narrative in your mind versus, say, the semiconductor stocks? Which one do you follow more? And are there opportunities right now to pick and choose some of the value trades in tech?
6: But yeah, I think
5: I think they're two a little too separate in, in terms of conversation here. Where a lot of the software companies just have such a high degree of recurring revenue, and that's what makes them so attractive, particularly in moments like we're in now, where there is uncertainty about the future. And also, there's this huge theme with shift to the cloud, which I think is here to stay and likely to continue even if the economy were to soften from these levels. First, for that reason, I think there's a lot of stocks in the software space, especially large cap uh, software. That are not inexpensive. You know, they're they're relatively expensive. When you look at a company like a Microsoft, for example, certainly falls into that that camp. But then when we look elsewhere in areas like um, the semiconductor space, we need a company like Nvidia, for example stocks down more than 50% for the year to date period it's not cheap either but relative to itself it is. And so I think we are seeing some opportunities- um, within tech uh, for some formerly loved companies uh, and in the, where we've seen a buying opportunity that's been created here. So I think we look at a company like an Nvidia and um, you know and look at the competitive advantages that they have. Uh, they're here to stay. They're an incredibly innovative company. We know the challenges they're facing at the moment. Um, and so I think in that instance, we have seen a, a, we have seen an interesting buying opportunity present itself here.
2: All right, John Najarian, uh, interesting stats coming out from Bank of America with regard to how they track fund managers. Interesting points that they've made is that they claim the mass inflow of money into stock funds between November of 2020 and February of 2022 has ended. There have been no inflows to stocks in the past six months. And they also note that they saw the largest outflow from technology over the course of the last couple of weeks here out of the tech sector specifically, John, since January of 2019. What does that say? Is that a good thing? Is is that maybe the capitulation-ish that we were looking for in this technology trade? yeah,
7: I, I would say yes, Dom. Um, the the fact that people have lightened up significantly in tech, is neither a surprise to any of the five of us on the show right now, um, but it probably created an opportunity that both Sh- Shannon and Brenda just spoke to. Um, you look at Zscaler, for instance, and that huge move that it's making today. I mean, uh, Ambarella, same sort of thing, and that is one of those uh, semiconductor plays, you know, for the, for basically for the lens that operates um, in your camera or iPhone or whatever. Um, I think there's some spectacular buys in that space. And I would say even some of the tech plays that were pandemic tech plays. Um, TeleDoc had a nice bounce. Um, we've seen a nice bounce out of several of the stocks uh, in the space that uh, DocuSign for instance today uh, was one of those you know huge outperformers during the pandemic and got sold down so hard, so fast as soon as the pandemic was over, but they did still have a business there. And I think um, many of us will be trying to pick up some of those into sell-offs like the ones we just experienced in tech.
2: All right. From tech to media, now Disney shares coming back 20% in the last two months, but still off nearly 40% from their recent highs. A bullish call out on the stock is out today. We've got ownership on the committee for Disney. That trade for Disney is coming up after this break. shares have lost a quarter of their value so far this year but morgan stanley is still a buyer the firm reiterating its overweight rating and calling for a nearly 10 percent upside from here everybody on the committee today owns disney stock it's our call of the day from morgan stanley brenda we'll start with you the disney call you own it you obviously still like it do you like it enough to buy more
5: Well, we already have a full position and to be completely honest, it has been a hard stock to own over the last few years because it just hasn't performed well. But when we look at the fundamental story here, you know, that's what we come back to time and again and just looking at the the company's ecosystem and the relationship with their customer where they touch them at so many different points, whether it's visits to the park, having content um, now on the Disney Plus and selling Licensed content. Uh, This is all. um, You know just part of the ecosystem that makes this company so unique. But I think now we look going forward with their ad supported version they're rolling out. I think this will present a unique opportunity for advertisers to target a younger audience. And when we think about how most children consume media. They have the opportunity to do that without advertising. And that's a big change from the way it was uh, when I was growing up certainly. So I think this presents an an interesting opportunity. um, That will make Disney more relevant for a lot of advertisers. Um, whether parents decide to um, to um, stick with the premium content uh, version or not, it remains to be seen. Uh, but I, I do think that this sets up um, just another lever for, for Disney going forward.
2: John Nigerian you, you own Disney. You also own Netflix. Which mm-hmm. would you rather right now at these levels? Yep.
7: Um, well, I'd rather Disney because more levers to pull, Dom. And uh, I know we use that phrase a lot, but obviously ESPN, we're going into college football season. We're going into uh, a lot of talk about pro football, which you and I love so much, too, Dom. And I I think that's a significant driver. Uh, People are back and watching those games uh, and games like talking about the games like last night. Buffalo uh, walked into the Rams stadium and sort of uh, dropped the hammer. Yeah, um, they smoked them I, I for think sure. also, yeah, yeah, they did. Uh, and I think uh, at the Merrill Lynch conference this week, the CFO also said, we're holding on to ESPN. And the theme park person said, the theme parks are just booked out. The hotels are basically pretty close to sold out. So that's all good. The fact, though, that Amazon has free and Netflix is trying to get an ad-supported system for themselves means Disney can't raise prices much on that that side. So I I think you want to look past the streaming side of Disney Plus and look over at the bigger revenue generators for them, Uh,
2: All right. So that's what Disney has. I'm going to stick with the streaming side, though, and turn to Jim Labenthal because you have Disney and then Paramount as well. So I'll ask you a similar question. Which would you rather right now, add to one Uh, position or the other?
4: Paramount. uh, It's without question. Now, there are differences, as you just pointed out. Paramount is much more into streaming but it has the highest growth rate in the streaming business in terms of subscriber additions. You know, the rub on all these streaming companies, Dom, is that they're having to spend to build out this platform to get the subscribers to come. But... Paramount is uh, free cash flow positive, will be next year as it reaches the nadir of its content spend. And it has $4 billion of cash on the balance sheet to begin with, with a ridiculously cheap valuation. So again, highest
2: growth rate in the industry of the streaming subscriber editions. This is the one I want to add to. Okay. Stay with the Halftime Report, guys. Mike Santoli joins us next with his midday word coming up after this break. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Senior Markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now for the New York Stock Exchange with his midday word. What exactly do you make of the action today? Is it constructive?
1: It seems uh, on net pretty constructive, Dom. I would say we're still feeding off of the fact that people were leaning pretty negative after the three down weeks we had coming into this week. Also, Seemed like we were bracing for a lot of the hawkish Fed speak we've gotten all week, which really did come through uh, pretty much one-sided, saying, you know, we still have an urgent job to do here. Rates are going to 4% on the short end. However, it was a more of the same as opposed to a fresh threat. And then also companies uh, in conference season all week didn't have anything that was like a unified, scary message about where earnings are going. All that stuff nets together. I find it interesting the S&P 500 sitting where it is right now Almost exactly at the level, 40.57, where it closed on the day of Powell's Jackson Hole speech, August 26th. So you've kind of recouped a little bit of that fear uh, decline from that point on. But now we're in a little more of a neutral spot ahead of the CPI number tomorrow.
2: An interesting round trip for sure. Mike Santoli, we'll see you later on this afternoon on Closing it. Bell and Overtime. Coming up next, we've got John Nigerian's unusual options activity. Stick around for his latest trades on Halftime Report. We'll be back in two minutes. It is time now for unusual options activity. And, John DeGerrian, what are you seeing?
7: Well, Dom, um, a whole bunch of activity in Wendy's for sure. W-E-N. That's, of course, the fast food chain. Um, They came for calls in a huge way, Dom. Whenever you and I have talked in the past about this, we look at what did it trade yesterday, last week, last month. Last month it traded 29,000 calls Today it's traded 40,000 at just one strike, the November 20 strike, and the stock and those calls are moving higher because of that huge activity, Dom. As far as other news uh, that we're following, and I bought all of these, Dom, I bought Wendy's calls, um, I bought Hood, which is Robin Hood, they're buying next Friday expiration September 11 calls. That's with uh, hood trading at 1068. They bought about 12,000 of those, 1.2 million share equivalent. That's a big trade. Um, FXI, this is the China, the big China index ETF. Uh, They bought 10,000 December 33 calls. Remember when this one was over 40 and in the 50s? Well, now it's $29 and 39 cents. They're buying the 33s, so another big bet million share bet on that. And then lastly, Dom, um, CL. That's Colgate, CL, Colgate, Palmolive, uh, 3,000 October calls at the 80 strike with the stock trading at seventy-seven and a half. I bought all those calls. And my intention, Dom, is to sell upside calls against them as it rallies.
2: All right. There's the unusual options action for the day. John, John and Jerry, thank you very much. Keep it right here because we got Final Trades coming up next on the Halftime Report. We'll see you in two minutes. All right, folks, here it is, Final Trades. Shannon Sakosha, we'll start with you.
6: reported a couple of weeks ago. Enterprise spending is not declining for large enterprises, and this is an an HR and resource management software. uh, Based in the cloud, we think this is going to continue to show revenue growth over the next couple of years.
2: And Brenda. Going with Stryker. So this
5: one, valuation has come down. But when we look at uh, their devices, many of them are used in revenue generating procedures at hospitals. We think there's a lot of safety in that, even if the economy slows. So we think the growth outlook continues to look really good.
2: All right. John Ejerian.
7: Uh Dom, I'm going with SEC Limited. This is um, basically a uh, Entertainment, e commerce, and so forth in Latin America and Asia. Um, The stock was trading in the 63 range, Dom. They were buying the September 23rd expiring 70 calls. I bought a lower strike, the 65s, with the intention of selling those upside calls against it if we rally to that point, Dom.
2: And Jim Labenthal.
4: Yeah, General Motors, we know the fundamentals, a cheap stock with a lot of pent-up demand. But take a look at this chart. It's up about 10% in a week. we got to respect that.
2: All right. Thanks a lot, folks, here, for having me here. That does it for the Halftime Report. The exchange with Brian Sullivan begins right now.
1: You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.
0: The spirit of performance defines Acura.